Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends, just trying to make a little money. My job's not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Sure, we know it. This market behaves better than it should. Yes, it held up with some real spots of strength today. Gallantly gaining 26 points. S&P advancing 0.42%. NASDAQ jumping 1.23%. But the truth is, there's a lot of rot underneath. And I think many investors are in denial about how bad things can be for some of the weaker players out there. The ones actually involved with the economy. The ones that don't have bulletproof balance sheets. Consider it this weekend, Warren Buffett presided over a somber annual meeting instead of the usual festival of investing. We had an older gentleman giving us some brilliant lessons, followed by a remarkable question and answer session with CBC's own Becky Quick. Typically, when the market gets hammered, Buffett's the first guy to tell you to stick with it. But this time, he wasn't bullish by any stretch of the imagination. I don't blame him. Later this week, I told you it was time to start doing some selling, and I still think that's the right call. We've had a big bounce from the bottom. We were selling all day today from our charitable trust after selling pretty heavily at the end of last week. I'm going to get the 20% cash that there yet. Got an ActionAlertsPlus.com conference call this Thursday at 1130, and I sure didn't want to have to defend a bunch of losers like Tyson Foods, which we bought for the trust when the trade war with China ended because the Chinese had a desperate pork shortage. I always say it's better to be lucky than good, and we were not lucky. As the coronavirus took the world by storm, Tyson stock plummeted. Buffett somewhat unwittingly quoted the late uh, great John Maynard Keynes, saying, when the facts change, you have to change your mind. And boy, did the facts change. But we're certainly not selling everything for the trust. I'm doing some buy of some things because, as you saw today, there are plenty of companies whose stocks are doing quite well here. Remember last week we came up with our Kramer COVID-19 index, which had more than 11 stocks, uh, $11 trillion in market cap versus, say, around $25 trillion for the entire market? We're selling the stocks outside this index. So when everything gets hit, we can put the money into the stocks in this index. The differences between what's working, the Kramer COVID-19, and what's not working are incredibly stark. And you have to be blind not to notice. And by the way, this is not something that's ephemeral, okay? This is not flitting. This may be something secular and important to notice. I bring it up because Becky asked Warren whether we are in the twilight of index investing here. Because so many people have embraced it already. Maybe too many people. Buffett seemed to interpret that question as a challenge to his dictum that active money managers generally uh, can't consistently beat the averages, especially when you account for their fees. I have a lot of truth to that criticism. It's incredibly hard to beat the S&P 500, and that's also in part because the index is more actively managed than it seems. They regularly change things up, subtracting losers, adding winners. But that really wasn't the thrust of what Becky was asking. She wanted to know if index fund investing may not hold up all that well here because the index has tons of bad stocks in it that may not survive a pandemic. 
You could argue that these bad stocks may come back, but I think Buffett would agree that many of them are in big trouble. That's why he dumped his huge stakes in the four big airlines. He's not waiting for them to bounce back. He knows they're losers in a new environment where nobody's flying, and that may not change anytime soon. To me, that was an affirmation that this works, that this is where you have to go. Buffett has a long-term horizon. Sometimes it's too long. He's perfectly willing to lose money in the short term if he believes there's a long-term opportunity, but he didn't do that with the airlines. That's quite telling. He acknowledged that the facts have changed, and he bailed on the whole group because he knows these stocks are toxic. Again, major part of the S&P 500, toxic. I feel the same way about whole swaths of the S&P 500, which is why Becky's question really resonated with me. Look, look at it this way. So far this year, 114 companies in the index have suspended guidance. 79 suspended their buybacks, and 31 have either cut or eliminated their dividends. Those are cold, hard facts, people. That's just the first quarter. We're only a couple of quarters, uh, months into this downturn with 30 million people unemployed and maybe the worst recession since the Great Depression. Many people own stocks for their dividends. What happens when those dividends get tossed in the wood chipper? You know, let, let's use some examples. It's always much more crystal clear when you teach with examples. We recently had the new CEO of Western Digital on the show, David Geckler. Straight shooter. And all things considered, I think his commodity tech storage company is doing pretty well. Company has a fantastic flash memory business. I greatly admire their technology. Always have. Western Digital also had a bountiful dividend. I asked Geckler about it, and he didn't exactly say it was safe, but he also didn't say it was at risk. On the dividend, you know, we'll have more to say about that in the future, Jim. It's only I'm only, I think, on day uh, 13 or 14 here. Now, if you listen to the whole interview, you might have felt sanguine about the dividend situation, especially given the healthy demand for Western Digital's product. But then when the company reported last week, Geckler confirmed that business remained strong. Next quarter, he predicted more earnings and revenue growth. All sounded pretty darn good, right up until when he announced that Western Digital was suspending its dividend, which was yielding close to 5% at the time, was really helping some people you know, trying to get a little fixed income. I'm not questioning his decision. It just it wasn't very fixed. Item moves like this are incredibly upsetting for investors. I found it very surprising we got a wholesale suspension of the pay, payout, not just a cut. Frankly, I found it terrifying. It's a, look, this is not Amazon. Okay. Now, that would be fine if Western Digital were an outlier. But you know what? The more I listen to these courses, not. We know that Warehouser, the huge timber company, has a long track record for rewarding its shareholders. They used to come on all the time. Last year, they paid out 34 cents a share quarterly. They raised it from the year before and the year before. This quarter, Warehouser reports some really blowout numbers. I mean, big earnings beat, terrific sales. And then the company suspends its dividend. It was totally jaw-dropping. Wall Street got caught with his pants down. The first question on the call was about how they decided to suspend the dividend rather than like maybe cut it a little. Listen to what CEO Devin Stockfish had to say, though. Quote, we look at this through the context of the macro environment and our market conditions. And really, as I mentioned, just an unprecedented situation in terms of what's going on with this pandemic. Broad swaths of the economy being locked down. We're seeing historic levels of unemployment, GDP contraction in Q1, expectations that it's going to be more dramatic in Q2, consumer confidence dropping, and really no clear path on the trajectory of the recovery. Ouch! Where else is bread and butter's housing? So this next part was a suitable epitaph for the dividend. Quote, we're expecting a significant erosion in housing and residential construction, as well as, to some extent, larger remodel activity here in the near term. I think we're in the early stages of understanding what that's going to look like. It may get worse for a while, end quote. Huh? I mean, that's it. Goodbye, dividend. Brutal. Now, I know there are plenty of standout companies that are thriving here. They're in the S&P, too. 
But for every Microsoft, which you know I love, or Amazon, there are the Deltas, the Boeings, the Carnivals, the Western Digitals, the, 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 the Warehousers. I mean, it's just far more treacherous out there than the action might lead you to believe. And I know a lot of people are like saying, oh, Jim, why aren't you more bullish, more bullish? Look, I'm bullish on this. Okay? Don't ask me bullish in the S&P 500. They're different. That's what I'm saying. They're different. I know the comeback today was sweet for the bulls, but it was in this. The big growth techs are extraordinary. They're divorced entirely from the world of warehouses, no doubt about that. They're linked to, they're not linked to housing. They're divorced from Western Digital because that has a suboptimal balance sheet. These don't. There are many other companies with stocks trading like their dividends are about to go away. And you know, and I know the bottom line. If you're in a lot of the Kramer COVID-19 index, boy, you saw a turn right at 931, didn't you? But if you're in the S&P 500 index fund, I recommend selling some of this if the strength continues. I know I still have more selling to do for my trust so I can buy more of the Kramer COVIDs. If you're in individual stocks and they can grow even in tough times, then you should be in much better shape than the index fund investors who are really stuck holding the bad with the good. Because right now, there's a lot more bad than Wall Street seems to think. Jim in Florida. Jim. Uh, Mr. Kramer, yes. thank you for being a voice of reason and reassurance in these unstable times. Oh, thank you, man. It's been really tough. It's not been a great time. It's been a lousy time. I'm not having a good yeah, time. Yeah, my, my, my sister had it. She's a nurse, and she's back mm. to work already. Thank God for oh, that. I'm glad she's feeling better. But my, my question's on C-Limited. It might be a good COVID stay-at-home stock. It's a Singapore-based e-commerce and e-gaming uh, company. Uh, revenue growth in the 160 range, and it's 99% institutionally owned. I got in at 17 last year. It's at 55. Do I stay with it, or is this ride done? I do not know C-Limited, sir. Uh, I think that that's a, um, a very interesting stock, and I happen to like Singapore very much, but I've got to do more work, and I have to come back. It's not within my ken. Let's go to Jordan in Minnesota. Jordan. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah, cool. Jordan. Big fan and follower. Hope you and your family are staying healthy and positive. We're staying also, healthy, but we're staying separate, which is kind of, well, whatever. We're staying healthy. Thank you. Hope you are, too. Yep. And thanks for being a strong voice for small businesses. My wife is a pediatric dentist and a business practice owner. Oh, thank you. The small businesses are still in a lot of trouble. I know that we don't trade small businesses, so it's hard to feel. There's a divorce between the what we trade and what's happening out there, and you and I both know it. How can I help? I got Dell Technologies. I'm a young and long investor. Bought a few years back at $40 a share, rode up to 70 and then back down to 40 Earnings at the end of the month and a weaker balance sheet showing more liabilities than those assets. Should I be looking to buy more, hold, or sell when I get the I, 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 I believe in Michael Dell. I, I totally understand that it's not a great time to be in that particular stock because of the balance sheet. But you got to, you know, sometimes you have to believe in a guy. And look, I could be wrong. Michael Dell's like anybody else, he's human. Uh, but I think that he's going to be able to come through this. I really do. Let's go to Justin in Kentucky, please. Justin. Hey, Jim, what do you think of eBay? The company had I, I didn't like that quarter. I didn't like that quarter. I mean, shouldn't they be doing great? I mean, it really is incredible that all these companies that are Internet companies that should be doing well, and the only ones that really ended up doing well were Facebook, Amazon, and Alphabet. Alphabet's such a buy here. I don't know what the deal is. All right, anyway, I know today's comeback story was sweet for the bulls, but you've got to understand there's some rot underneath it, just not in the big cat names. Remain cautious, big cat COVID names. Well, maybe not tonight. How should companies start thinking about reopening during the coronavirus era? Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff seems to have an idea. Then Warren Buffett's investment actions speak louder than his words. I'll tell you my key takeaways from Berkshire Hathaway's annual shareholder meeting. 
And the company up in J&J expand manufacturing for potential coronavirus vaccine. You don't want to miss that. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps. I wish we had more leadership from the federal government right now, but fortunately, some public-spirited companies and people are stepping into the void. Take Salesforce. We talked about CEO Mark Benioff's no layoffs for 90 days pledge, something he's aggressively pushed to the rest of corporate America. But earlier today, Salesforce stepped up its efforts. Now they're tackling the problem of how do we reopen the economy safely. That's why they've launched Work.com. That's a collection of technology solutions to help business and community leaders make this transition as responsibly as possible. In the absence of a nationwide plan, and you know we have no plan, I think this is a huge step forward. I urge you to go to the site and see what a professional approach to this disease looks like. This morning, I spoke with this trader guy, Chance, to speak with Mark Benioff, the founder and chairman and CEO of Salesforce. And we kept talking about, well, let's say after the show, so much of what's really going on. Take a look. Mark talked earlier this morning about how we're in the second phase. Companies have to know what to do. Uh, what I left out is it's not just companies. There are uh, states that want this uh, and that it's already in play in one state. Well, that's exactly right, Jim. You know, the. This first phase of the virus has been so challenging for us. And, you know, our heart has really gone out to everyone who's been affected uh, by the virus. That's one of the things that has motivated us to acquire now almost 60 million pieces of PPE and distribute that to hundreds of hospitals around the world. And, and I'll tell you, Jim, that as we've thought about and worked with our customers during this first virus, one of those clients that was uh, really impactful for us was the state of Rhode Island. And their governor is incredible. And she had the vision that she needed a couple contact tracing with her testing. And that really gave us the vision that every organization is going to need to be able to deploy information technology like contact tracing to mitigate the spread of the virus as we enter phase two, which is what we're getting ready to do now, getting ready to get back to work safely. I'm somewhat concerned about uh, the steps that are being taken right now in phase two uh, versus the gap that we're going to have before we get a vaccine. And I think it's substantial. I know you've got some fabulous doctors involved. I know Dr. Brilliant feels like I do. I know he's part of your team that there is going to be a a moment where we may not get that vaccine as quickly as the president uh, says. I don't want to hate him or like him. I'm not here to debate his issue of when we can get the vaccine. But the fact is, we have maybe 90 disparate organizations and companies working on a vaccine. Shouldn't they all be working in uh, Alamogordo together? Well, Jim, you're exactly right. Uh, We we need a vaccine and we need that desperately. Uh, We need a Manhattan project, if you will, 
for the vaccine, because as we enter phase two, we're going to get back to work without a vaccine, which means that the virus is still going to be out there. And for our employees, for our customers, well, we don't want them bumping into the virus. So we need to do things that are going to help us to mitigate our interaction with the virus during phase two. That's why we're going to have PPE in our workplace. We're also going to take people's temperatures before they come into the office. We are also going to enforce social distancing standards, making asking our employees and customers to stay six feet away from each other. But we're also going to deploy information technology that is going to give us the ability to provide a safer workplace. And that's what Work.com is all about. Work.com is a platform allowed allowing our customers to reopen safely. And we think this is going to be extremely important. But look, customers are going to need a command center. They're going to need this contact tracing. They're also going to need to do shift scheduling. You know, They're not going to bring everybody back at once. They're going to bring them back in shifts because if one shift gets uh, the virus, they're going to quarantine that shift and keep the other one going. They're going to do workforce triage. All of these things are kind of next generation apps, and we're going to need to deploy those rapidly to our customers. You talked about at the top 50 million PPE. Uh, there was an excellent article in the New York Times that talked about the coalition you had put together uh, in order to be able to bring in a lot of PPE that was so needed. It was actually the largest chunk of PPE that came into our country. Uh, it did. Uh, the coalition included the Chinese. And maybe you can just uh, opine a little bit on maybe the Chinese people versus the Chinese government, because I know that we... Uh, there's a lot of saber rattling, but it seemed like there was tremendous cooperation among the actual people in China to help you. Well, Jim, as you know, I'm in San Francisco and our local uh, medical leaders here, led by Sam Hoggood, the chancellor of UCSF, really had a call to arms in early March. He saw that there was a tremendous amount of PPE used, being used in the hospital, even though the virus has actually had very little spread here in the Bay Area because everybody coming into the hospital was afraid that they had the virus. So he called me and he said, is there any way you can help us get more PPE? That was the beginning of this. I had never heard of what PPE was, Jim, I have to be honest with you. And uh, so I called a friend of mine, Daniel Zhang, the CEO of Alibaba, who's in uh, Shanghai, and asked him if he had connections for PPE suppliers, and he did. And he was able to help us get prioritization on PPE, and, and uh, like, uh, like I said, we've secured tens of millions of pieces of PPE, brought them here into our country as well as other countries as well. Well, uh, going back to work.com, one of the things that uh, I see really is uh, very telling, and I know it's been a theme of yours, reskilling. Now, is the reskilling that particularly has to do with the pandemic, or are you just talking about the notion of, of jobs changing rather dramatically because of it? Because th- if it's jobs changing rather radically, what you're really saying is this is going to be with us a- a- for a long time in one form or another. Well, Jim, we, we certainly see, you know, as we start to head into phase two, we see more of a depressionary environment, maybe a, recession, a significant recessionary environment. I don't know what your economic forecasts are right now, but what I see is there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be looking for work. I think there's 20 or 30 million people already out of the workplace in the United States. I don't know what the number, specific numbers are, but I know that those individuals to get back in the workplace may need reskilling and retraining. That has to be a part of any back-to-work program. You know, I think the government's also going to need to encourage and incent companies to rehire these people and get going quickly. You know, we've seen in the first stimulus them taking care of people and providing welfare services. Now we really should encourage everyone to rehire quickly. Do you think there's a possibility that you could, uh, let's say, 
put together two of your initiatives, that you have a civilian conservation corps that plants a trillion trees for the younger people who are coming out of college and just have the, hot, the prospects for getting a job are the worst I've ever seen, Mark. And we have all these people. We don't know what to do with them. Maybe a CCC is the right thing. Well, Jim, you are 100 percent right. We're going to have to find new and creative ways to employ everybody. And yes, that could be environmental programs like planting the tree and trees. That could be a, a new type of conservation corps. That could be a renewable energy jobs, which are the fastest growing type of job in the United States. By the way, it could also be uh, individuals who, are, who have learned how to reopen the workplace safely. Mm. I think that that will be a critical job that we don't, certainly did not have at our company you know, three months ago that we're going to need in our company next month when we begin to reopen you know, aggressively around the world. So we need to really think about how are we reopening, who's going to help us reopen, how are we going to reskill, how are we going to get everybody on board? We have to get everyone back into the workforce. This is going to be a critical part of everything that we're doing. Well, Mark, I got to thank you. I mean, I, I felt work.com was the first thing that made me think maybe there's a procedure here. Maybe companies, if they all followed it, it we would know what to do. Everything seems to be every person for themselves, Mark. You've noticed that, right? It's all just catch as catch can right now. Well, Jim, from my perspective, I'm always thinking about with my company, what can we do to help others? Philanthropically or commercially? Right. You know, that, that's the nature of stakeholder capitalism. You know, we're we're about the business of businesses improving the state of the world. That's how we got caught into helping our customers, you know, uh, during this critical time. That's how we got involved in PPE. That's also why we've deployed so many emergency versions of Salesforce just in the last few months, almost 6,000. And that's why we built Work.com, because we realize that every customer is going to have to focus on reopening safely. And to do that, they're going to need information technology to help them do that as well. I would tell also uh, journalists and investors, go through work.com. You understand the challenges that people are going to have and the companies are going to have. Mark Benioff, Chairman and CEO of Salesforce. Thank you so much, Mark. Great to see you on MedMoney. Jim, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on your show. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. So my wife calls me on Saturday, asks me what I'm up to. We're serious about social distancing. We've got about 90 miles between us. I told her I had to call her back. Don't interrupt. Warren Buffett was giving his talk at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. It was just getting juicy. What made it so enthralling? First, for once, Buffett told us uh, now's not the time to be ecstatic about the market. He reminded us that we got through the Civil War and Great Depression. But uh, that's your basis of comparison. You're, you're painting a pretty bleak picture. Normally, Buffett's reassuring with the market sells off, not this time. He refused to describe this meltdown as some sort of garden variety squall, which shows you that we really are in uncharted waters here. He, uh, he thought we'd get through it, though. But the question is, when? When will this be over? 
Maybe it just started, which brings us to point two. Buffett didn't buy anything when the market crashed in March. That's telling. It suggests that this difficult period might last longer than you think. Of course, the Oracle of Omar could be wrong. I mean, it's known to happen. But this is the guy who always says, buy when there's blood in the streets. I'd argue that his worldview is often too complacent, unless you're already a billionaire. He's not complacent this time, though. When the Dow Jones plummets from 29,000 to 18,000 in a matter of weeks, you think that qualifies as blood in the streets, right? But if he really believes this period is as perilous as the Great Depression and the Civil War, then maybe we're going to be in for a lot more pain. Worrisome, to say the least. It's the way I felt. Third, Buffett addressed the airline losses that he had uh, head on. Folks who had. I thought he might want to avoid it, given that this wasn't the first time he'd been burned by the group. Nope. He went there, emphasizing over and over again that he was wrong, made a mistake, that taking 10% stakes in the four biggest airlines was, yes, a big mistake. Although, to be fair, I mean, this one was impossible to foresee. The stocks looked really cheap when he bought them. Then the pandemic hit, shut down the whole industry. Who would have thought of that? But even here, there was a valuable lesson. Buffett sold all the airline stock at once. He didn't try to take half measures because his thesis, he thought, we're, we're going to put up big earnings eventually. Uh, why not hold on? No, it's no longer true. They weren't going to put up big numbers. So what's the point? Why hold any? Far too many people just try to hang on when, things, when the thesis falls apart, or they just sell little to hope that maybe things will bounce back. Buffett knows that's a fool's game. Think of it as the Miller's Crossing School of Investing. You do things for a reason. Finally, though, Buffett reminded us that it's also a mistake to bet against America. You want to belong the United States. Sooner or later, I'm sure they'll say there'll be a vaccine. President Trump is adamant we'll have one by the end of the year. Me, I'd like to think it would be that short, but it may be much longer. Buffett made me wonder if I was being too negative. Historically Historically betting against American scientists has been wrong. On the other hand, we've never developed a vaccine in less than four years. So that argument cuts both ways. I'll say this. It'd be a lot easier to feel confident in the future if we get something like a Manhattan Project focused on beating COVID-19. Just massive federal funding to stop this thing by any means necessary. But sadly, that's not what we have. Steve in New York. Steve. Jim. Steve. Booyah. (laughs) What's up with Darden Restaurants? I cannot wrap my head around this. I, I got well, I mean, Darden's going to be last man standing. Now, remember, they got rid of the dividend, which is really brutal. Um, you, you know you can go to Olive Garden, and uh, they can be able to move the tables around. I've been doing a lot of logistical work on restaurants. They're one of the few survivors. I think you actually can buy this stock. I don't really like the, these stocks at all. But that said, this is the best. How about that? It's the last man standing. Chris in Maryland. Chris. Hi, Jim. Listen, love your uh, love your work, and thanks for taking my call. Oh, sure. I'm What's up? On invest- I'm focused on investing in companies that can uh, capitalize on what appears to be both a long-term and an accelerating trend, and that's the shift to online learning. Uh, one of those companies in particular that facilitates this for uh, upper-end, top-tier ed universities is called 2U. What do you think? Oh, man, they burned us bad. We got smoked by 2U. Uh, we got... We, we hit it out of the park with Chegg, though. And I, I for uh, Chegg, I think, is my one. 2U was, uh, was, not, was not for me. 2U, not for me. How about that? Rodney in Pennsylvania. Rodney. Hi, Jim. Rodney. I enjoy your show. Thank you. Okay, my question is, with Constellation Brands recently raising their stake in canopy growth, do you think this stock is a long-term buy? Yes, I do. 
And I've got to tell you also, I mean, I was over at the B-Bell CLO on Saturday doing some social distancing. Uh, we didn't even have a cocktail anymore. We're done with, like, the cocktails. They're bringing in big from Bottle King, you know, the big Coronas. I think that people drink a ton at home. And that is exactly, exactly what Constellation told us. When, when we had Constellation on Bill Newlands, he was killing it. He's crushing it. And now he's getting these, buying up the rest of the canopy. If you ever get a Democrat in, the first thing that's going to happen is Canopy's going to own a whole market like Fritos, but it's going to be Canopy. So I like Constellation. And don't forget, Seco Tomorrow's coming up, and maybe people find a way to drink even at a bar. All right, Buffett knows it's a mistake to bet against America. We're going to get through these difficult times, but the question is, when? That Civil War took a little while. All right, much more man money ahead. Deal with Johnson Johnson's the latest in a string of manufacturing agreements for emergent biosolutions. It, uh, it's just in smarts. We like those guys. They're going to talk to the CEO about the company strategy. Then a couple weeks ago, I recommended a bunch of specialist real estate investment trusts. One of the names joins me tonight. It's the one that has most to do with COVID. Don't miss my exclusive with Alexandria Real Estate. Where, yes, we overdo COVID. Well, can you really overdo COVID? No! Not until we stop it. An order calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Nothing's more important than beating this virus, which is why I try to keep you up to date with the companies that are fighting COVID-19. Companies like Emergent Biosolutions, a drug company focused on vaccines. You might remember them as the supplier of smallpox and anthrax vaccines for the U.S. government. And now they're fighting the pandemic. Emergent is developing a pair of treatments using blood plasma. One takes the plasma from people who already have coronavirus antibodies. The other uses plasma from horses. Horses that have been immunized, both could potentially help people with severe cases of COVID-19, make it easier for their immune systems to fight this thing. And that's what really is at stake here. On top of that, Emergence signed on a contract manufacturer for not one, not two, but three drug companies that are working on vaccines, including the one of the most promising ones from J&J. And that's why the stock has been roaring. It's up 47% for the year, close to 20% just since J&J news a week and a half ago. Can this stock keep climbing? Let's take a close look with Robert Kramer, no relation. The president and CEO of Emergent Biosolutions find out more about what is company's doing to fight the outbreak. Mr. Kramer, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be with you. Okay, so Robert, here's something that's amazing in your conference call. You say, first, we're taking our history of working hand-in-hand with the U.S. government to be able to develop and manufacture critical vaccines. Second, we're leveraging our long history of manufacturing our own therapeutics and vaccines to develop two COVID-19 product candidates. Simply put, Emergent is built for this challenge. How did that happen that it's just you're the right time for Emergent? Well, I think, Jim, this is a a culmination of what we've been doing for 20-plus years as a company. Uh, We've had a history of uh, focusing on public health threats, helping our nation prepare for these kinds of of threats, whether they be chemical and biologic threats or the opiate crisis that we last talked about on your show back in December or now the the COVID-19 crisis. So we built a business around a model that focuses on helping our nation prepare for these kinds of threats. And we couldn't be more proud of the work that we do or the partners that we serve, including J&J. So let's divide it of the candidates that you have yourself and the there's some smaller cars, the deal with J&J, because I'm trying to understand. I, I spoke with some of the people up at Harvard that, that are working with J&J, and they're very excited. The, the main thing is that J&J also needs the scale if it really works. But is it a race among yourselves, your contract manufacturer versus you? No, I think we're, uh, you know, we're here, Jim, to support 
any number of vaccine candidates with the overall objective or goal of making sure that we get at least one, if not several, of these vaccine candidates through a phase one, through a phase two. Uh, we have the capability to manufacture those candidates at a scale where we could potentially make hundreds of millions of doses of those available to the public as soon as possible. That's the goal. Uh, we're kind of indifferent, quite frankly, in terms of okay. what, which one gets there. But we're here to support anybody who wants to work with us. OK, so, Bob, this is what uh, I watched the town hall yesterday with the president, and he's basically guaranteeing a vaccine by the end of the year. My problem is having a vaccine and making the vaccine are very different. You just promised that it could be hundreds of millions, which would eliminate a lot of what I'm most worried about, which is there's a million and there's just a, a rush to see who gets it. Do you think that the president is being too exuberant and it would be better to step back and say, we sure hope we can get something soon? Well, I think that's probably the better wording, Jim. I mean, listen, nobody can guarantee anything. Uh, we're here as well as all of our partners and collaborators doing everything we can uh, to make sure that a vaccine and treatments are available as soon as possible. Uh, and whether you refer to the, the current administration's uh, comments on warp speed or pandemic speed. I mean, we're all in this together to literally accelerate wherever we can uh, the development and the clinical timeline. And it's true that the typical timeline would be, uh, as Dr. Fauci and many other his colleagues have said, 12 to 18 months. The hope is that we can look at this creatively. Uh, we can look for ways to shorten that time frame and make a uh, significant number of doses available to the public as soon as possible. But, Bob, when you look at uh, who has done things fast, a bowl of five years, months that I found was the shortest four years. It, isn't this 18 months? Is there any way we could be just completely wrong? And uh, and we're just you know, that it's just a, a three year thing. And we shouldn't try even three years would be incredibly fast. Yeah. So I think it's important, Jim, to differentiate the timeline from beginning to an FDA approved vaccine versus from the beginning to a vaccine that could be made available to the public under some type of emergency use authorization or compassionate use protocol in a much faster time frame. So, for example, uh, once you go through a phase one and you're into a phase two and you're preparing to do the readout of that data, can we be prepared to have tens, if not hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine available, which have been manufactured at risk during the right. phase two, so that when that data is read and the FDA can get comfortable with the safety and efficacy of that data, those doses can be released to the, to the public under some type of emergency use authorization. That's where the shortening of the timeline could happen. Well, look, you just, you made me feel better. I, I am, uh, I've been caught up trying to figure out where we could get that break. Maybe that's where it is. I want to thank you so much, Robert Kramer, CEO of Emergent Biosolutions. Last time, Narcan. This time, COVID. May have money's back in. It is time. It's time for the light. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Steve? Guys, on the lightning round, because we're going to start with Nick in Virginia. Nick. Jim, booyah. Booyah. 
What's happening? I started watching your show about a year ago, and now I watch every day. Thank you for helping us through these challenging times. Oh, thank you, man. It is a little challenging out there. What's going on? I recently added a small position in Meredith Corporation, ticker MDT. I know they suspended their dividend and advertising revenue is down, but they are committed to the dividend long-term and advertising gets a smaller slice of their revenue than it was 10 years no, ago. No, what we're you- not a buyer, Nick. What we see is that this is exactly what Warren Buffett was talking about. Some industries just went away. That industry went away. Let's go to Vinny in Pennsylvania, please. Vinny! Hi, Jim. How are you? All right, Vinny. How about you? Oh, good. Very good, as a matter of fact. Uh, myself and Bruno, my 230-pound St. Bernard, wanted to just thank you for uh, taking our call. We really do appreciate it. Uh, I'm out there trying like everybody else. What's going on? Uh, well, I'm interested in your thoughts about Nokia. Uh, they've sort of been through a lot recently. They're yeah, but to me, I mean, look, I want growth. I mean, tonight you had, you had uh, Cirrus Logic, you have a great number. Skyworks Solutions, you have a great number. You got 5G writ large with Skyworks. Let's go with that. I know it's not a $3 stock. It's a $100 stock, but we just buy fewer shares. It's fine. Let's go to Philip in Texas. Philip. Booyah from Beaumont, Texas, sir. Oh, man, nice. Thank you for everything you do for all of us across America. Oh, geez, thank you. You're wow. welcome, sir. The MLP, son, if you could give us uh, your word on the fundamentals, the dividend sustainability, and when we take a disbursement from our Roth, are we still paying the MLP's corporation tax? You know, you're going to have to ask your accountant on that. I'm not going to venture into that particular world because there's a lot of different varieties there. Uh, The actual stock that you want, I don't know. I mean, to me, I mean, I hate to say this because I know people are going to say, what are you kidding me? But if I want sun power, I mean, if I really want solar, I want Tesla. And I like Tesla. I know that he said, you know, I know Elon said the stock may be too high, but I don't blame him. I mean, he's dealing with people in California trying to shut him down. Got Germans and Californians that should be ganging up to try to get him to be able to make as many cars. I want, I like Tesla. Let's go to Seth in Texas, please. Seth. Hey, Jim. It's a pleasure to meet you. Oh, same. What's going on? Real quick, uh, when I was... 16. My parents gave me the book Real Money. I'm investing for the first time at 25. I really appreciate everything. There the investment go. I got for you um, is a Rubicon project. A lot of revenue growth. Yeah. Oh, man. Online advertising. I actually know them from the MyStreet.com days. Look, uh, the better one is Trade Desk, but I don't want to push Trade Desk because it's about to report. And if it does some number that's bad, people just say, oh, you idiot. But Trade Desk has been the way we've been doing it. Let's go with Sharon in New York. Sharon. Yes, hello, my friend. Um, I know that you always recommend Alibaba yes. from China, but what about Baidu, B-I-D-U? See, I just want the best, and I want to leave the Raggedy Brothers to the rest. I think we just stick with Alibaba. I need Dan in New York. Oh, come on. Dan in New Jersey. Dan. Booyah, Jim, calling from Springfield, New Jersey. How are you? Oh, man, you're around the corner. You're stone's throw. You're stone's throw. <laughs> Any of those restaurants open over there? I like those of those restaurants over there. A couple are open. Uh, I was wondering about your view on uh, American Express as a long-term investor. I like Master. I like Mastercard first, PayPal second, uh, Visa third, and American Express fourth. Sorry, it's got too much uh, travel and entertainment. Let's go with Christy. Could be Chris Christie. Christy in New Jersey. Christy. Hey, for the first time follow. I'm a long time watcher. Fantastic. And my ten-year-old has something to say to you. Now look at that. There's a family who knows what they're doing. I got horse sense. What's going on? I. I have two positions. Would you be able to tell me both of them or just one? Uh, just one, I think. I, okay, I have INTT. 
INTC Intel. Uh, I don't like Intel as much as Advanced Micro, AMD. I'd rather back with Lisa Sue down here. The stock has really come down. I pushed it hard on Friday. No one seemed to care. Suddenly, everybody liked it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to Mark. I got, I got some sleep after Mark woke me. I got, a, I got 45 minutes. It was fantastic. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. What's worth owning now that the pandemic started to look a lot worse? Maybe a lot worse outside of the New York metro area. I think some of the specialty real estate investment trusts will make a ton of sense. Companies like Alexandria Real Estate Equities, that's a longtime Kramer fave, that own science and technology facilities, especially farm and biotech labs. Most office REITs are totally toxic right now because for one, white-collar workers, the stay-at-home economy will be with us for a long time. But laboratories, research centers, we need more of these things if we're ever going to beat COVID. And it's not like you can conduct serious biomedical research out of your basement. We know Alexandria reported a very solid quarter a week ago, and the stock pays you a juicy 2.8% yield at these levels. I think it's a terrific place to hide if the averages keep getting slammed. Don't take it from me. Let's check in with Joel Marcus, the founder and executive chairman of Alexandria Real Estate Equities, to hear more about the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. Marcus, welcome back to Mad Money. It's a pleasure to be back with you, Jim, even in this uh, very terrible time of uh, COVID-19 uh, my best regards to everyone who's been impacted personally, uh, both health-wise and financially uh, by this uh, terrible pandemic. You know, it isn't a day that goes by. I mean, when it started, you didn't know someone, and then you started knowing people, and then you knew people in your close circle. And now it's just every day. I mean, is it the same, same where you are? It is indeed. California has been less impacted, uh, but we took early, uh, early action by... Uh, social distancing and uh, closing down. And I think that's paid off. And obviously, there's a lot more room here in California than there is in places like New York City and New Jersey, as you well know. Oh, yeah. Now, Joel, uh, when I go through all your documents and your uh, Q&A and conference call, you're different from most REITs I deal with. You're directly involved as a partner. Most places, they just take the rent. Why is Alexandria far more in partnership, say, with Moderna than a lot of uh, let's you know, office suites are with their uh, w- w- with their tenants? Well, thank you, Jim. For sure, Moderna is a very important uh, client tenant of ours. We started with them back in uh, 2015 when they were first founded uh, by flagship laboratories. Uh, our teams are 24 uh, seven delivering services, providing uh, important jobs, and really providing uh, frontline resources to the critical innovative companies who are really on the front lines of the testing, of the uh, therapeutic development, and hopefully uh, solutions to the vaccine problems. And we operate 24-7, and our people really are essential, and the laboratories in which they work truly are essential. So uh, when you're uh, working on these partnerships, it would seem that uh, initially I was worried that people would be able to do the lab work and then leave your offices and go home uh, because I'm worried about the stay at home thing. But that's just not economic. Your people need to be at your buildings. 
Right. And the way they've worked out is those uh, in biotech and pharma, those who can work from home in sales and marketing and other executive positions right now are doing that virtually. Uh, but many of the frontline researchers and in the manufacturing plants, very interestingly, we built uh, Moderna's manufacturing plant in uh, Massachusetts as well. Uh, they are taking shifts in the laboratories. Many of them are working 24-7, social distancing. Laboratories, by their very nature, pretty interesting, have so built-in social distancing. Uh, they provi we provide and they get 24-7, 100% fresh air. And, you know, wearing masks and gloves, that's done typically in the laboratory, full PPE. So they become almost naturally uh, protective in that, uh, in that environment. Now, recently you... Uh announced a very big acquisition uh, in one part of California, and you walked away from a, from a building that looked like an historic building, but I don't know, in, another, in San Francisco. Can you explain to me those moves uh, so that I can understand in an environment where the, the rent, it's 2.2, there's, no, there's no occupancy, there's nothing, there's, you can't find any space. Why would you ever walk away from one and get big in another? So that's a good question. So the uh, couple of the acquisitions we did in San Diego really surround a important mega campus we're uh, developing uh, for both technology and uh, life science companies. So that was an important add-on to uh, that campus development. Uh, the property we walked away from, first time I think in the history of the company we've ever done it, it was a tech office building inside the city of San Francisco, where as COVID hit, we realized that the tenants themselves, they weren't laboratory tenants. Our goal was someday maybe to convert that to laboratory. The rents were under market, and we felt uh, at the time our underwriting had to, be, had to be reassessed, and it wasn't worth the value that we were thinking about. So for the very first time, we walked away. Well, I mean, I want people to know that you have a total return of 1,450% since your IPO in 1997. So to me, if you walked away, it's because you made a judgment that you're not just going to stick by a, a deal if the deal's not economic. Uh, that's correct. And if it was a full operating laboratory today with rents under market, and we knew that the rents that were established and the companies that were there were operating, uh, then we probably would proceed, have proceeded. But those weren't the facts on the ground. Right, one last question. When we did our REIT analysis and we included you in our uh, anti-COVID $11 trillion with companies, it was very clear to me that if you weren't a REIT, you wouldn't be part of a cohort. I want, I want REIT for tax purposes. But if you were just a growth stock, I think your stock would be higher because the REIT index is so heavily shorted. Do you ever find that to be the case? Well, that's true. Many, many uh, investors invest for us, obviously, for a total return. Uh, the dividend is very attractive. We also have a $1.1 billion venture portfolio uh, that is marked to market. Our cost basis today, even in a bad market, is a little bit over $700 million, and we're up uh, marked to market uh, between three and four hundred million dollars to get to about a 1.1 carrying value. So a number of people invest in us for a variety of different reasons. But historically, it really is the great cash flow. As you know, from our first right. quarter results, our earnings were up uh, or our revenues were up 22 percent. We've given 
uh, guidance this year, reiterated guidance only down 1% really due to retail, and we'll continue to increase the dividend this year. So we feel good about, very good about our position, and we collected 98.4% of our April rent, wow. which J.P. Morgan said was number one of all of the office and commercial all rates. All right. Well, thank you so much, to Joel Marcus, chairman of Alexandria Real Estate Equities, doing really the best among my REITs that I follow. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Jim. Always a great pleasure to be with you. Look, if you want a real estate investment trust, you have to have them. You have to have tenants who pay. You heard that, 98%. And I gave you that performance. Pretty amazing. Made money's back into the break. Look, you don't want to overthink this. There are two markets right now. There's the market that is levered to the actual economy or has a bad balance sheet. Those stocks, that market, terrible. And then there's the other part that's levered to great secular trends like the web and it's good balance sheet. That's the good part. Like I said, there's always more market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Markets in Turmoil with Scott Wapner is next. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.